Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Tuesday, March 15th, 2022. On today's episode of the show, we're going to be talking about the best things at South by Southwest 2022. My name is Ben Pearson. I am an editor at SlashFilm.com. I am joined on today's episode by Slash Film editors, Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. And editor slash uh, chief film critic, Chris Evangelista. Oh, Hello. All right, guys. So I did not attend South by Southwest 2022, uh, virtually or in person, but we have a, uh, a grouping of you who were there virtually. Jacob, you were there on the ground. So uh, I just thought it would be a cool opportunity to, for you guys to just tell me about the best movies that you saw there. I'm excited, actually, because there are several movies here that I've literally never, never heard of before. Um, so I think this will be a good opportunity to sort of put a bunch of things on people's radar on the the uh, for the listeners anyway. So um, let's just, I guess the best way to do this is probably just cycle through, just uh, sort of go around the circle and you guys just tell me about a, a thing that you really enjoyed watching. So um, Brad, let's kick things off with you. Uh, yeah. So uh, I started off my festival pretty well with uh, a movie called I Love My Dad. Uh, this is a movie starring Pat and Oswald, and it is an extremely cringeworthy comedy, uh, like right on par with the, the most uh, embarrassing, awkward episodes of The Office. Like, this would make Michael Scott blush. Um, it is based on a true story. I don't necessarily know how close the movie is to the true story, but uh, it's inspired by something that actually happened to writer-director James Morosini, who also stars in the movie as Pat Oswalt's son, Franklin. And the movie itself is about uh, a deadbeat dad, played by Pat Oswalt, who has never really been part of his son's life since divorcing his mother. He's constantly um, disappointing his son, never showing up for like milestone moments, always canceling family vacations, then leaving these just disappointing voicemails. And it's become a very stressful part of his son's life so much that uh, he at, at some point tried to kill himself. And he's just now coming out of this uh, therapy session afterwards to deal with the, the trauma and kind of setting boundaries for his dad, which he, does by blocking him on social media and ignoring his calls. And because uh, Pat Oswalt's character uh, doesn't make the best decisions, uh, he figures or thinks that the best way to try and maintain contact with his son is by creating a fake profile for a girl and catfishing his son so that he can carry on some semblance of a relationship 
conversation uh, with him, and uh, it gets out of hand <laughs> to say the least. And um, uh, it's it's very well done because like. Obviously, this could easily have been a thing where you're watching these text conversations unfold uh, with the you know graphics that show the the messaging bubbles and whatnot. But uh, where James Morrissey makes it more interesting and adds a layer uh, of comedy and extra awkwardness is by visualizing the conversations by having this fake girl that Patton Oswalt's character created based on a, a real waitress he, he met at a diner um, actually interact with Franklin as if they were like on dates and talking in person. Uh, and then that also like works to its favor when s- certain awkward things happen and Patton Oswalt is in place of that curl instead. And so it's um, it is uh, it's, def- it's it's a dark comedy, but not dark in the way that you think of certain dark comedies. It's just unsettling and uneasy and extremely uncomfortable to watch. Uh, it, it heads down the disastrous place you think it's going to, but it doesn't take away from uh, just how good the execution is because like. Even though Patton Oswalt is like making these terrible decisions and is doing this despicable lie for selfish reasons, you still get like the sense of like he is desperate to like reconnect with his son and make up for the mistakes that he makes, and that's that's just uh, because of Patton Oswalt's awesome performance. You know, he's just he plays this lovable loser so well that like you feel sorry for him and you want him to like come forward and tell the truth and reconcile with his son. Uh, as you're watching him continually dig himself deeper into this terrible lie that he's created. Um, but it's it's very, very funny. It, obviously, it has uh, a lot of heart to it as well. Uh, the, the performances are, are great. There's um, some funny supporting stuff from Lil Rel Howery and Rachel Dratch as well. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's great. Definitely, uh, I think, probably my favorite of the fest. And uh, so make sure you, you seek it out whenever uh, it happens to come out. Okay, so that's called I Love My Dad. Yeah. Uh, Chris, let's go to you. What was something you, you watched and enjoyed? Uh, I did a lot of documentaries. I also did a lot of TV, which is why I'm not really talking about it much on this episode. But um, one of the documentaries I did was called The Pez Outlaw. Uh, and it's about this guy named Steve Glue. It's spelled G-L-E-W, but it's pronounced, you know, Glue. And uh, he's this very um, quirky, odd character. He has OCD, so he's he's very into uh, OCD things. And uh, it reveals, you know, how he, he started collecting Pez and then... Um, you know, I don't know about you guys, but I don't know a whole lot about Pez. I know what they are. I know that, you know, the dispensers and, you know, that's, that's about the long and shorten of it. And, uh, this, this reveals that, so the American Pez company and the, the European Pez company are sort of at odds and Europe has all these Pez dispenser designs that never make it to America for one way or another. Um, uh, in, in this documentary, there's this guy who, who runs the American Pez company who just rejects all the European ones. And because of that, the European Pez dispensers become, you know, collector items for people who collect Pez dispensers because they can't just go into a store in America and get them. So are we and, talking like, sorry to interrupt you, Chris, but no, like the, uh, are, are we talking like, um, like Pez dispensers for, uh, for Tintin or like, um, you know, it's the not even that. or something that is like, you know, uh, like inherently European by creation. You know what I mean? You know, one of the flaws of this documentary is that it doesn't really go into the designs. It just basically sort of runs past that and says, you know, there are all these designs that America keeps rejecting. And, so Steve Glue sees this opportunity and basically what he would do is he would fly over to Europe and he would go to factories and he would slip the people running factories money. And because they were like, it was, this was like in the eighties and you know, the, the, uh, the Berlin wall was coming down and, and American money was a big deal, even more so now 
so he was he would slip the money and they would give him thousands of of Pez dispensers and he would come back to America and sell them. And he actually got away, away with this because for one reason or another, Pez never registered with customs. And if they had, like he would be stopped at the border and they'd be like, <laughs> you can't bring the but, but because Pez forgot to register these designs, he was able to just like literally just bring them into the country and start <laughs> selling them. And as a result of this, the Pez company got, uh, you know, upset with him because technically they're, he's selling their property. So the whole movie is just about him, uh, you know, building this name for himself as the Pez outlaw, this guy selling Pez dispensers and butting heads with, with Pez. And it's just, you know, it's a very fun, uh, lighthearted documentary. Like the stakes could not be lower. Like even, <laughs> like even when he gets caught, it's like, well, you know, these are Pez's. <laughs> so it, it's, you know, I, I feel like, um, this, this was a little padded out. Like there's an entire segue midway through the movie where they go and they talk with this other Pez guy, this Pez collector guy, who's like jealous. They're not making the movie about him. And while that's amusing, it just feels like, Oh, there's not enough here for a full movie. They probably could have made this an hour, but it's just so charming. And the Pez outlaw himself is such a likable guy. He's got this big wizard beard and he's kind of weird and he's got a a family that loves him. So it was just, it was a nice movie when it was over. I was like, that's a nice movie. And it taught me about, you know, the differences between American and European Pez. Wow. I had no idea. Okay. So that is called the Pez outlaw. Uh, Jacob, how about you? Uh, should I start with the best or start with like other stuff and work way up to the best? Uh, why don't you work your way up to the best? Okay. In that case, I will start with a very charming documentary uh, called More Than Robots, which is directed by uh, Gillian Jacobs. You know her as an actress from Community and other things, but this is her uh, her feature debut as a filmmaker. And it's a Disney Plus documentary about the first program, which is a educational robotics program worldwide that is uh, – it tries to, for lack of a better word, get kids interested in building robots. And actually, what I found really interesting about this documentary is that uh, the founder of First, who I actually interviewed for Slash Film, an interview should be going up shortly along with film's producer, uh, Dean Kamen. He invented the Segway, but he has a thousand other patents. And his whole thing was Hollywood is really, really good at selling movies and selling movie stars. Uh, and professional sports are really, really good at selling you know, the NBA and NFL. Um, why can't we make robots seem as cool as that why can't we like get people excited about robots and he, he feels the educational institutions are failing at getting kids excited about things and he said we should take a page from hollywood and from um from special sports so he founded first to be this organization where high school kids uh form teams around the world and they build robots for very specific obstacle courses and very specific problems to be solved in front of an audience where there's music and mascots and competition and alliances and the uh Documentary follows four teams around the world, uh, two in Los Angeles, one in Mexico, one in Japan, uh, as they work with different resources, different mentors, different perspectives, different worldviews to build robots. And I found it delightful. I, I found myself utterly riveted by the idea first about these robotic competitions. And I love how just straightforward it was about how, about how you know, uh, some schools have entire robotics labs where kids are like have a lot of money and resources and then our kids are working in the hallways of their schools. And but they all love building robots. And all these kids like, you know, find communities and the movie, I guess, minor spoilers ends with the pandemic hitting all the kids not being able to participate in doing robots anymore, but they immediately start using all the skills they learned building robots to assist their communities. And 
you know, 3D print things that doctors need or use their uh, use their skills to, like, you know, assist male communities and volunteers. And the movie's thesis is that, hey, if, if kids know ro- making robots is fun, they become better people and can save the world. And the movie does a really good job of actually presenting that in a way that's really um, entertaining and fun. And I can really imagine like a kid like watching this and going, I want to build robots. And it made me want to build a robot. And I'm 34 years old. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I've, I've interviewed with the people with like I said, the founder of first and the producer on flash film uh, by the time you hear this. And he is a trip. The founder of first, he's incredibly entertaining. He, he's made very clear that uh, educational institutions are failing Kids aren't excited by robots. Robots are excited by sports and movies. So why can't we use that 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 language to get kids excited about robots? And he said that um, Disney Plus is going to be his greatest weapon in getting kids to like robots again. Using his documentary on Disney Plus, I, th- I found it all very charming. And I, and I love how incredibly straightforward he was saying, "Yeah, Dis- Disney, let's make this robot movie because Disney is going to get us in front of the most kids." I don't care what you about Disney. We're, we're going to use that. We're going to weaponize that the best we can. I yeah. found it to be incredibly entertaining, both at meta level and as and as a movie itself. So uh, go watch the documentary. It's, it's actually streaming on Disney Plus this Friday, uh, March eighteenth, twenty twenty two. Then you can go read my interview with the very entertaining founder of First. Okay, so that's called More Than Robots. That sounds like another nice movie. And Jacob, it does not surprise me at all that you liked this, given your uh, propensity for BattleBots. I brought BattleBots up during the interview, actually. And <laughs> he he at first seemed very annoyed until I explained that, no, no, I like watching robots hit each other, but I also talk about motors and engines now with my wife. And he goes, oh, really? So it was, <laughs> it was very nice. funny. Okay, uh, Brad, let's go back to you. What was another one you liked? Uh, yeah, so speaking of great documentaries, um, I watched the first episode of an upcoming series, four-episode series, uh, called They Call Me Magic, which is coming to Apple TV Plus soon. Uh, and this is a documentary miniseries about Magic Johnson, the famous Lakers player, uh, one of the greatest NBA players of all time, uh, and basically tells his life story and his rise uh, in the NBA, uh, his rivalry with Larry Bird, all, the, all these different uh, moments of his career. And it really feels like Magic Johnson getting... Uh, the Last Dance treatment, the uh, the Chicago Bulls documentary series, which blew everybody away when it was on U- uh, ESPN during the pandemic. And uh, I've only seen the first episode, but right away you just get a sense of how uh, slick this documentary is and how well it was put together. Uh, it's directed by Rick Famuyiwa, who has uh, directed some episodes of uh, The Mandalorian. He also directed uh, Dope. And so it's uh, it comes with a incredible cavalcade of all-star talking heads. Uh, from you know professional basketball players like Magic Johnson himself to Shaquille O'Neal, uh, Barack Obama is is in this. Uh, Coach Pat Riley, anybody and everybody you would want to talk about Magic Johnson uh, is in this documentary, and it's also shot in just a very classy, stylish, aesthetically pleasing way. The Talking Heads themselves um, have these just really great settings. There's uh, plenty of coverage, so it's not just the same boring talking head over and over again. And it's also just um, put together in a, a very energetic and breezy narrative feature kind of way. It has this really uh, great soundtrack that's kind of powered by Magic Johnson's uh, love for music that he brought into the locker room. Uh, he used to walk into the locker room with a boombox playing uh, hits um, the, the oldies and all that stuff. So it, it really just has this great energy to it. Uh, and as somebody who you know grew up loving the NBA in the early 90s, which was you know kind of towards the end of Magic Johnson's reign, um, this just hits a sweet spot for me of what I loved about basketball. And so seeing his entire story play out like this is, uh, is really cool. So I'm excited to watch the rest of it. Uh, it doesn't come out until uh, late April on Apple TV Plus, so keep an eye out for that. But uh, it's one that you're going to want to see. 
Interesting. Man, this is like a, a good time for Magic Johnson stuff because there's that show on HBO that I haven't watched yet called uh, Winning Time that's about like the Showtime Lakers of the 1980s. And I think Magic Johnson is like a uh, a player. In, I mean, like a somebody who's playing him uh, yeah. as a character in that. I don't know if you've seen that show, Brad, but... Um, I haven't watched it yet, but I I need to watch that too. So the thing you just uh, talked about is called They Call Me Magic, and it's coming to Apple TV+. Plus. So keep an eye out for that. Uh, Chris, back to you. What what was another thing you enjoyed? Uh, This is another documentary. It's called Nothing Lasts Forever. And this is specifically about the diamond industry. And this is another thing I didn't know a lot about. And uh, so so the, the hook of this is that uh, synthetic diamonds, you know, diamonds created in a lab, have reached a point where they look identical to real diamonds. And in some cases, they're even better than real diamonds because they, they don't have you know the flaws that natural diamonds have. And so this documentary focuses on, on two sort of warring factions. You know, there are the people who advocate for the synthetic diamonds, which are, of course, uh, not only do they, you know, look great, but they're, they're cheaper and, you know, you, you don't need to, you know, uh, use uh, questionable labor practices to extract them from the earth. And then there are the people, you know, in the natural diamond industry who think this is sacrilege. And their argument all stems from, you know, Oh, it's not the same. It's not a diamond pulled from the earth. But really, you can tell they just, you know, they want to keep making all that money. And who can blame them? I, too, would like to make a lot of money. Uh, but this was just fascinating because it, it not only does it point this out, but it also points out that uh, synthetic diamonds, you know, fake diamonds, for lack of a better term, have pretty much infiltrated the the real diamond industry. And it's gotten to the point where no one can actually really tell that apart. So... People might very well be paying a fortune for synthetic diamonds and not realizing it because there's they've gotten so good that there's almost no way to really tell. And there's also no way to really stop the infiltration at this point. And so not only did I find that, you know, a fascinating topic, but the way this this documentary is made is just incredibly cinematic, where you know, I watch a lot of documentaries and a lot of them have a very similar style where, you know, it's, it's some recreations and you have your talking head interviews and that's fine, but it's, you know, that can get a little dull. And, and uh, Jason Cohen, who directed this, uh, this movie finds a way to make all of this like really cinematic. Like he doesn't do reenactments. He just films people going about their day and he does it in like really stylish ways. And it, it almost looks like we're watching. I don't want to say a movie cause this is a movie, but you know what I mean? It looks like we're mm-hmm. watching like a narrative film, but it's a documentary and it, it's just shot in this really unique way that I found just really uh, engrossing in a way that I probably wouldn't have. It was just, you know, simple, simple point and shoot talking head stuff. So yeah, I thought this was a uh, pretty, pretty damn interesting. Okay. Well, I mean, yeah, that sounds especially interesting for somebody like me, who the only thing I really know about diamonds, Chris, is that, uh, you know, in America, it's bling bling, but out here, it's bling bang. Wow. So, you know, the, uh... <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. <laughs> Guy, this pop- Were you sitting at that the entire time Chris was talking? Just waiting? Yeah, of course man. I was. Yeah. <laughs> this podcast is free, guys. It's free. Yeah. <laughs> I've been sitting on this since 2006, Jacob. So I've just been waiting for the one time where I could bust out a quote from the movie Blood Time. Um, okay. So yeah, that movie is called Nothing Lasts Forever. And that actually does legitimately sound interesting. So uh, Jacob, back to you. What's another thing you liked? 
a movie I liked, but I, I wish I loved, but it, it is worth seeing, especially if you think your target audience for it, uh, is The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. This is the uh, movie where Nicolas Cage plays Nicolas Cage. He plays a version of himself who is uh, divorced and estranged from his daughter and up to his uh, neck in debt and tax bills. And it's generally uh, not taken seriously by Hollywood, who's no longer uh, casting him in serious roles. And he's offered, and the plot of the movie is that a cajillionaire in Spain, played by Pedro Pascal, offers him $1 million to come attend his birthday party. And the gist is that he learns that this cajillionaire is a massive Nick Cage fan who's written a Nick Cage screenplay and end up becoming fast friends, like absolute buds. And the, the, the gear that gets thrown into this is that the CIA comes to Nicolas Cage saying, hey, your new millionaire friend is actually a, a dangerous arms dealer. We need you to spy on him in order to uh, bring him down. So that's, it's a, there's a lot of movie in this movie. And it's very much built on, you know, your, whether you have affection for Nick Cage, for Nicolas Cage as an actor. And I think to the movie's credit, uh, Nicolas Cage is actually fairly restrained throughout. He's playing himself pr- like pretty narrowly. He only lets himself go full meme cage on a handful of occasions, including some scenes where he has a um, imaginary frenemy, which is himself from the eighties, sort of with his, uh, uh, I'm not sure if he's digitally the age or wearing makeup, but it's a very uncanny looking, <laughs> much younger Nicolas Cage. Who's all takes and all memes and all speaking weird Nicolas Cage voices. Uh, and those scenes are the ones you'll get see, see ripped to YouTube the fastest, I think because they are the, the memeiest, but the, the, the heart of this movie, the stuff I really, really liked is the friendship between fake Nicolas Cage and Javi, who played by Pedro Pascal, as they hang around his mansion, they drive across the Spanish coast, they take LSD, they share story ideas. And there's like sort of like, like Judd Apatow meets Richard Linklater quality to these scenes, where these two are just hanging out, talking about stuff. And like there's a like, this minor spoiler, like, there's a, there's a great scene where they watch Paddington 2 together to give you an idea of the kind of movie this is. <laughs> and <laughs> I found I found these scenes so charming. And Nicolas Cage and Peter Pascal have such amazing chemistry. And Pascal is so funny. Whereas Nicolas Cage is kind of oddly restrained, more so than you think he would be for most of the movie. Pascal is just, he's such a star. You, you watch him, you understand why he's in Mandalorian, why he's in Last of Us, sort of they're making right now. You understand why he headlined Narcos for on Netflix, why he, like, came out of nowhere for game of thrones he's so good he's so funny and when a movie is just him and nicholas cage being buds it's so fun uh but the movie eventually has to give way to the cia subplot becomes sort of an action movie it kind of becomes a c-less action movie for its third act which is really disappointing uh especially since uh, tiffany haddish and ike barinholtz who play nicholas cage's uh, cia uh handlers are really bad here and just they really have nothing to do and if they had if they had cut out all the action stuff and just made this movie about Nicholas Cage and Pedro Pascal being buds, no one would see it, but it would have been a great movie. <laughs> Instead, it's a, <laughs> it's, a, it's a pretty good movie that has some incredible moments that kind of just devolves into uh, a pretty standard, you know, the kind of movie Nicholas Cage, unfortunately, stars in too often, a very direct-to-video feeling action movie. But when, when it's not that, you know, I remember Way of Master Talent is a lot of fun, especially if you're a Nicholas Cage fan, because there are so many fun little references and Easter eggs. Uh, I mean, every, of course you get face off in con air, but um, guarding Tess is a major plot point. (laughs) And the chainsaw from Mandy gets a shout out. So it's, I, I, it's a movie worth seeing. If if that sounds interesting to you, then yes, you should see it. Okay. So the unbearable weight of massive, of massive talent comes out, I think in theaters on April 22nd. So like late next month. Uh, Um, Yeah. Looking at that right now, you are correct. Cool. All right. uh, Brad, back around to you. 
Cool. Uh, I'm going to actually hit up another documentary that I watched, and this is one that uh, cinephiles out there will really enjoy. Uh, it's called Spaz, uh, and it's about Stephen Spaz Williams. Uh, and if you're a fan of The Abyss or Terminator 2 or Jurassic Park, you might be familiar with that name uh, because this is the guy who was responsible uh, at Industrial Light and Magic for creating the computer animated uh, visual effects that made the pseudopod in the abyss, the reflective chrome form of T-1000, and the computer-generated dinosaurs of Jurassic Park possible. Uh, this was a guy who got uh, an education in computer engineering and animation and just happened to be the r- guy with the right tool set uh, working at some whatever company doing uh, computer animated visualizations for various products, uh, including uh, fluid dynamic animation for like Gatling guns on battleships and industrial light and magic desperately needed somebody to figure out how to create the liquid pseudopod and make it look realistic and believable in James Cameron's the abyss. Uh, And he was the right guy for the job. Um, But he's also this kind of like unconventional rebellious, almost Wolverine-like kind of guy, uh, and he doesn't doesn't really know how to play Hollywood's uh, political glad-handing game. So, this documentary, on one half, is this fascinating story about how he brought about the rise of modern CGI visual effects as we know it, uh, with a lot of behind-the-scenes uh, footage and. Uh, information from the making of those three aforementioned movies, as well as insight from a bunch of his colleagues at Industrial Light and Magic. Uh, But it's also this kind of tragic profile of this guy who kind of uh, imploded and self-destructed himself because he doesn't really know how to play well with others and basically, uh, you know, blew up, you know, what the career that he had because he was clashing with ILM. And uh, in particular, This documentary does not paint a very kind light of Dennis Murin, another name uh, behind the scenes that you might know based on his uh, incredible stop motion creature work on Star Wars and a variety of other uh, sci-fi and fantasy movies. Uh, Dennis Murin is a special effects icon. Uh, People who, you know, want to work in special effects often want to do it because of the work that he's done. But uh, he clashed with Spaz uh, Williams a lot during this time. And uh, it seems like maybe... Dennis Murin might have taken some credit for some of the things that Williams did without Mm. really uh, giving him his due diligence. And some of this speaks to a larger issue in the industry where visual effects supervisors and like heads of departments uh, end up taking the credit that uh, people that are working within their departments do. But like here, the, the, the real thing is. Uh, Spaz Williams was like the one person who knew how to do this kind of stuff. And he went out of his way to make sure to show people that he knew how to do it. Uh, We wouldn't have gotten CGI dinosaurs in Jurassic Park if he hadn't defied um, the orders of Dennis Murin and other ILM people to not even try to see if he could do it because they were happy using Phil Tippett's stop motion animation um, to, to make it happen. But he happened to stealthily put together a uh, CGI test of a walking T-Rex skeleton and caught the eye of Kathleen Kennedy and Frank Marshall and Steven Spielberg. Wow. And, that, and that's what brought about the decision to do it. And uh, as you will as you see it, it happen, Murin ends up being the one kind of taking credit for it, uh, accepting the Oscar when, when they win it for that. And at no point does he thank uh, Spaz Williams and plenty of other ILM colleagues will say, like, we couldn't have done this if it wasn't for him uh, doing this. And so it's a, uh, it's, it's a bit of a, a sad story and frustrating one, but you also find out that Spaz, you know, uh, he recognizes like his own personal flaws. He's 
uh, rebellious to a fault. He's not very diplomatic. Uh, he also happens to struggle with alcoholism. And so it's this mix of like fascinating behind the scenes Hollywood history, but also the a tragic profile of this guy who, you know, was at the top of his game, uh, like was one of like the few computer animators in like the 90s who was like named alongside George Lucas and Tom Cruise as one of the most influential people in Hollywood. Uh, and now he's not even working in the industry anymore. So, wow. Yeah. Man, yeah, I remember like reading or or maybe even seeing like behind the scenes footage of that moment where Spielberg and and uh, Kennedy and Frank Marshall are like gathered around the monitor looking at that uh, that CG test, and I had no idea that Spaz Williams was the person who did that. So yeah, it sounds like a a cool uh, sort of behind the scenes story there. So um, okay, Chris, back to you. What was uh, another thing you enjoyed? Uh, this is a TV thing and, um, it's, I don't know if I can say enjoy it because it's, it's very upsetting, but it was, it was very good. And it's, um, the girl from Plainville, which, um, is based on the true story. I'm sure most people have heard the story, but they don't know the details. Um, uh, there's this young woman named Michelle Carter and, uh, her boyfriend, Conrad Roy, uh, they were, they were, um, in like a, a long distance relationship because, they lived in different states, but they they text each other. And Conrad Roy died um, died from suicide, and it was later revealed that uh, Michelle Carter had sort of talked him into it. Um, at one point, um, uh, he he pumped uh, carbon monoxide into his truck, and at one point he got out of the truck and called her, and she supposedly told him to get back in the car and you know go through with it. And this has already been covered in a uh, a documentary called "I Love You Now Die." And despite that very lurid title, that documentary is is very good because it, it actually, um, you know, if you just hear the story off offhand, you're just like, "Wow, this this Michelle Carter is probably a monster for telling her boyfriend to do that." Mm-hmm. That sort of like was my knee jerk reaction. And when I watched that documentary, uh, I'm not going to say I'm like, oh, I completely sympathize with her because obviously that's, you know, <laughs> that's not what I'm going for here. But it paints a really well-rounded portrait of who she was and who he was and uh, their relationship, everything that went went uh, you know down with this, this case. And so this show dramatizes that and Elle Fanning plays uh, Michelle Carter and she's really good here. Uh, it's a really tricky performance because she has to find a way to make this character not despicable, but we still have to understand there's something not quite right with her. Um, uh, and like I said, this is, this is not easy to watch. And I watch a lot of true crime shows and a lot of them are really sort of lurid and trashy. And this takes an opposite approach where it tries to be as respectful as it possibly can. And while that's commendable, and while I think that is probably the only way you can, can tell the story, it just makes for, just really bleak, bleak watching. Like the, the final episode is like just incredibly like dark and crushing. And it's, it, it leaves you feeling just bad when it's over. So mm. like, if, if you're looking for like tiger King sort of true crime where it's like, everything's trashy and over the top, this is not what you're going to get. You're going to get something much darker and much bleaker here. But I, I really commend everyone involved with the show because I can't imagine I'm sure they got their foot in the door by being like, true crime is big right now. Let, let us make a true crime thing. But I can't imagine this is what people picture when they think of a lot of true crime. So it's it's not going to be easy for everyone. But I, I really commend them for going through and making something this this challenging for, for the streaming era because you don't really get a lot of that. So there's a lot more nuance here than I think you could expect. So if 
if you have a strong stomach and you can handle the bleakness that goes on here, I think you will enjoy this because it's a really well-made show and the, the cast is great. But like I said, don't, uh, don't go into this if you're, you're not in the best headspace because it's going to leave you feeling uh, kind of miserable. Mm. Okay. So that's called the girl from Plainville. Um, Chris, do you know what streaming service that's going to be? That's going to be on Hulu and it's going to be on very soon. I'm typing as I do this, pretend I'm not. Uh, <laughs> I'm still talking and I'm, I'm this keeping is all, natural. all of this in. This is all natural. This is uh March 29th. It'll be on Hulu. There you go. Wow. I had that. I had that info in front of me the entire time. I was just pretending I didn't March 29th. Perfect. Okay. Uh, Jacob, let's go back to you. Uh, as a quick as- aside, I do want to say I did, I did watch a TV show that I actively chose not to review because I did not enjoy it. Uh, the Halo show is no good, folks. Um, but let's talk about um, something I did like, and that is the new film from Ty West, uh, the A24 horror movie X. Uh, Ty West is best known for uh, uh, like his slow burn horror movies. He's going to have like, you know, an hour of like just deep tension followed by explosions of violence. And uh, X is no different following the footsteps of Innkeepers and House of the Devil and all those other movies where – uh, things are buried until they can't be buried anymore. Then the fireworks factory explodes. And X is about a, uh, a small crew of filmmakers and actors trying to make an adult film in 1979 in Texas, uh, outside of Houston. And they rent the uh, guest home of uh, on this isolated Texas farm. And things go very badly. Uh, turns out that the uh, there are dangers lurking nearby. Uh, and become, It's a slasher movie. I'll say that much. But I'm trying to... Not say too much because the movie in true Ty West style really buries the lead as to what it's really about, as to what's going on. It, it, the movie takes its time getting there. I personally found the trip to be very rewarding. This is a icky movie. It, I mean, Ty West has made movies that have been violent or upsetting. Uh, but this one is just icky. It, it feels like you need to take a shower after watching it, both in terms of uh, sex and violence. It is just a nasty little thing. Uh, but it's also really funny and really tense and... Uh, uh, when the, the gore starts happening, uh, people's bodies move in directions they shouldn't move, and things happen to them that you don't <laughs> want to see. Uh, and as a horror fan, I had a great time with it. But I can imagine a lot of people, especially people looking for a more traditional slasher movie, are going to be very angry or annoyed by it. I do think that Ty West is a bit of a troll. I do. I, I, that's what I like about him is that he very clearly uh, takes his time and does tension because one, he is building character, he's building suspense, but two, he's, he's, he's kind of fucking with you. And that's, and I kind of appreciate that about X is how far it goes in one direction until suddenly the rubber band snaps back in the other direction and suddenly really bad, gnarly things are happening. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's a really well-made, well-shot, extremely entertaining thing. And I will say a moment, there's a moment involving a drone shot and an alligator that I found to be a pure horror cinema bliss. So that's uh, X it's kits theaters, uh, this week, March 18th. And if you're an adventurous horror fan who likes to talk about horror and has a strong stomach, I had a really good time with this one. Chris, I started for the side, right? You're a Ty West fan, right? I am. I like, um, I think the only movies of his I haven't seen is The Sacrament, but I've seen all the others. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then I think you'll like X. If you feel like the other movies and kind of get his pacing and tone, then I think X is for you. Yeah. I'm, I'm excited to see this at, at some point. Okay, so we're coming near the end here. We should probably like try to speed through the rest of the options here. So, Brad, I know you have two more movies on your list. So why don't you do like a, a one-two punch and, and hit us with both of them at the same time? Oh, boy. Okay. Um, so, uh, Linoleum uh, is another movie uh, directed by Colin West that stars uh, a familiar comedian, Jim Gaffigan. 
taking on a role that is somewhat comedic, but also uh, dramatic. And this movie was really interesting to me because I spent uh, the first, uh, most of it actually, trying to figure out exactly what it was going for because it has some, it feels like it has some threads that don't entirely connect. And so the, the basic gist of the movie is Jim Gaffigan plays this guy who hosts um, like a, uh, a public access style children's education program that's not dissimilar from Bill Nye, the science guy. Uh, he wanted to be an astronaut and said he became an astronomer. Now he's doing this and he's kind of hit a midlife crisis. His wife wants a divorce. Um, he just found out that his show is being sold to PBS, but he's being replaced by an actual astronaut as the host who just so happens to look like a younger, mustachioed, more handsome version of Jim Gaffigan. Um, that's both because it's also played by Jim Gaffigan, but also because it's uh, an important part of the story. And then uh, the last little bit that kind of sends him into just this uh, weird decision-making process is that uh, a satellite fall um, crash lands in his backyard, forcing his family to be uh, kicked out of their house because it's taped off as like a police scene, essentially, and they're living with his wife's uh, sister temporarily. And so he just, in this midlife crisis mode, decides he's going to use the satellite uh, junk and his know-how of uh, astronomy and whatnot to build uh, a rocket that he will take himself into space to prove to everyone that he's not a loser. It's, wow. it's not, it, yeah, it's this very quirky, typical indie kind of setup. And as the movie moves forward, uh, it goes in some int- like directions that don't feel like they're cohesive. And like the movie feels like it's, it's it might be kind of a mess. Uh, there's a side uh, plot that focuses on his daughter who is, uh, goes to a private school. She's uh, kind of uh, sarcastic and an outcast, but she meets this new kid who just comes into town. They strike up a friendship, not a, a romance. Um, and it just so happens he's the son of the astronaut who's replacing Jim Gaffigan on his own show. And so there's a lot of connections between these characters and stuff, but it still somehow feels disjointed until the film's last 15 minutes. And I won't say what happens or anything like that, but suffice it to say, it just wraps up the whole movie in this really uh, beautiful, charming package uh, that really uh, surprised me and kind of took my breath away. Uh, it, it turned out, it turned like completely turned my opinion from being like, okay, this is kind of a, a messy, whatever movie that's mildly enjoyable to really just loving it. Uh, and Jim Gaffigan is great in it on top of that. So um, keep an eye out for uh, Linoleum whenever that ends up making its way to theaters or VOD. Okay. And then there's one more documentary that you saw. Yeah, sorry, I went a little long on that one because I've just there was a lot to talk about with that. But yeah, this, yeah. Is, this, this, this quick one. There's a Tony Hawk documentary. Tony Hawk, big professional skater, the greatest there ever was. Uh, you've played his video games, you've seen him do crazy tricks and everything. And uh, this is a documentary that chronicles his entire uh, career. It's full of incredible arch- archive footage and tapes of him doing tricks, and uh, it's actually a lot more hard hitting than I was expecting. It really digs into. Uh, Tony Hawk as a person, not just as this you know uh, skateboarding icon, but like you really get a sense of just how obsessed he is with skateboarding to the detriment of uh, his relationships and uh, his life. Like it, it's like an addiction essentially for him uh, to the point where like he needed to have therapy about what he was doing with his life and how hard he was going. Um, and he's still going hard. And uh, the opening of this documentary alone made me re- like immediately knew that I was going to love it uh, just because it opens with him uh, attempting a very famous trick of his uh, and he keeps trying and trying and failing and failing and like as it gets he keeps going and going you just feel the falls harder and harder and harder and there's this great shot at the very beginning when the credits open up that it's just uh, it's 
awesome that they captured it. It's really perfect. Like it's almost too perfect. It feels like it could have been staged, but it's it's very clearly not, uh, just because of all the preceding footage that that they have. And it's just uh, it's a great look at Tony Hawk as uh, not just an athlete, but uh, a guy. And who, you know, came into his own and found something he was passionate about. And not only did it make his life better, but in some ways it kind of ended up making it worse. Uh, And so it's just a really fascinating profile on him. Okay, so that's called Tony Hawk Until the Wheels Fall Off. Um, Chris, I don't think you had anything else, but I I don't want to skip anything. If there's any other TV that you wanted to mention real quick. Uh, No, I'm good. I, uh, yeah, I'm good. Okay. (laughs) Uh, And then Jacob, I think you had two other things you wanted to mention as well, right? Yeah, one I'll go over very briefly on that is uh, Marcel the Shell Ole with Shoes On, which is unique because it's a PG animated family movie that A24 is releasing, which had, turned up a lot of eyebrows. You know, A24 has a reputation for being, you know, dark, adult, strange, art house cinema. And this film fits the A24 brand in that it is very unique, small, and special, but it's also the kind of thing you can show a smart, curious kid, and I think they would enjoy it. And the basic gist is that it's a fake documentary uh, where a co-writer director dean fleischer camp more or less plays himself as a guy living in an airbnb after a breakup who encounters a small shell creature uh, named marcel uh, who lives in the house with his mother connie and marcel is voiced by jenny slate and connie is voiced by isabella rosalini and they're, they're not like they're not like regular normal earth creatures they're, they're literally these sentient shells that have shoes and they walk around they have eyeballs and they have thoughts and opinions about the world and the movie is this incredibly charming, very funny, very low-key uh, uh, comedy uh, and drama that that's structured like an actual documentary. I think so many fake documentaries, like you know, The Office on TV or the Christopher Guest movies, borrow the basic language of like you know of a handheld camera, talking heads, trying to you know capture like a documentary uh, using as a shorthand for for jokes. Whereas Marcel the Shell shoes on feels like an actual documentary. It feels like somebody actually encountered a little shell creature and somebody who knew how documentaries and cinema verite actually worked really went out and made this movie. <laughs> it actually has the voice and tone and structure of a real doc, which makes it feel really specially unique for like a film nerd point of view. Uh, but it's helpful that Jenny Slate uh, gives an incredible performance as Marcel, who's like just this, this really amazing character, this like little shell creature who's lost his entire family, is forced to be live alone, taking care of his grandmother. Uh, and it really ends up feeling like a documentary about but like a resourceful kid who's been living on the streets, who has kept his chin up despite all things that have gone wrong. And even though it's this magical realism fake documentary, it feels like a portrait of a survivor. It feels like, it feels like a, a documentary about somebody who has not let the world get them down, even though they've been kicked to the ground a thousand times. And I found it really interesting. And it's based on a series of YouTube shorts that the director made, which I have not seen. Uh, so, so the fact that I really enjoyed this, uh, I think says a lot about that. It, it works for everybody. You should okay. watch. You should watch the shorts because the shorts are also very charming and adorable. Yeah, I, I will. I will check them out. Yeah, this, this is delightful, and this one also uh, comes out in the nearish future. I have this. Uh, um, uh, like, I guess not. I thought I thought it came out soon, but I'm not seeing release date on this page. Anyway, the movie I've been building up toward: um, uh, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, a new film from uh, Dan Kwan and Daniel Scheinert, who are better known as the Daniels, uh, who directed uh, Swiss Army Man a few years ago. Uh, they're back, and this movie is, uh, look, I'm going to be told I'm overhyping it. I'm gonna be, some people are going to yell at me saying, you know, you overhyped this for me, or you're over-exaggerating. Uh, but no, it's it's the best movie I've seen since the pandemic started. It's the best movie of the past five years, best American movie of the past five years for sure. Maybe an all-timer for me. Um, it's uh, profoundly good. It, if you've seen the trailer, you know the basic gist, which is that Michelle Yao plays a Chinese-American woman who, along with her family, is uh, at the an IRS office trying to deal with her taxes. Things have gone horribly wrong with her money. 
her life's in disarray. She's incredibly uh, despondent. Her husband uh, is a half glass full kind of guy, but even he's starting to feel the pressure. Her daughter is her daughter uh, is miserable and depressed, and into this uh, already very mundane, very normal, normal, painfully normal situation, uh, she learns that there's a multiverse. It exists, and a, a dark entity from from another universe has declared war on all of existence, and that she is the only person who can save the multiverse from whatever this force is uh, via an alternate version of her husband, who, unlike the sort of um, very mild mannered, uh, you know, char- nice but low key guy she's married to, she's very tired of this version of him literally pops in from another universe. He's from a sort of an eighties post-apocalyptic James Cameron universe where he's trying to save <laughs> the universe. Uh, and it thrusts her into the spotlight where uh, she has to use their technology to uh, connect to other versions of herself across the multiverse, meaning that she can literally like tap into the multiverse and find a version of herself who became a martial artist and use martial arts to fight somebody, or she can tap into somebody else and tap into um a singer, she becomes in a different universe and use that singer's lung capacity to uh, not inhale like gas, or like wow. she, she she taps. So it's like into- downloading stuff from the Matrix, almost. Yes, it, it is. Uh, it is. But she like ends up using like all like and like because this has so many different opportunities for wild visuals. As she pops across the multiverse, borrowing versions of herself, battling invaders from across the universe, essentially, uh, as they take over bodies of people around her, and as she uncovers what's going on and. Since she has a, a crisis herself, like all of her emotional issues come to a head in the form of her having access to superpowers, essentially. And I don't, I don't know how much I want to say it because the movie is so good. I wrote two, I wrote a two thousand word review. I wrote my first, my first, my career first ten out of ten review was for this movie, and I just found it so funny. It, it is very Douglas Adams in that it has a very drawl sense of humor about you know how the universe is way too big for us and our, and our attempts to comprehend it are just going to kill us in the end. It is very, very Matrix in that it's this very humane science fiction story about connection. Uh, but it's also very Chuck Jones because the Daniels are nothing if not like like disgusting little perverts who love butt plug jokes as much as they love you know genuinely thoughtful discussions about you know life, the universe, and everything. It is just this filthy cartoon science fiction uh thing I, it's so hard to explain it it, uh, it has like the, the visual like like uh momentum of something like scott pilgrim or speed racer where it just says if you can't keep up sorry and it's just spiraling at all times and it's never slowing down and when it does slow down the it does so just to punch you in the heart a thousand times um I said, if you want, to, if you want to, I wrote two thousand words. Reviews on slashroom.com. Please find that. I don't know how much I can sum up beyond this, but it's a movie about. It feels so twenty twenty two. It feels like a movie that could only have been born in the past few years. A movie that who, made by filmmakers who are roughly my age, who are like roughly our age of people on this podcast, and so much about the stuff that we feel. I think, especially like you know, late age millennials. I think are going to watch this and feel seen in a way that really hurts, but also feels good. <laughs> um, it's really much about like what happens. When everything is falling apart, you have access to too much information. You have access to everything you could possibly want. And all it's doing is making you feel numb and unable to function. And what happens and how you need to, and how is, it, is the only way out of that kindness? Is the only way out of that positivity? And what does it mean to be positive? What does it mean to be kind? Where, like, is that actually helpful? The movie is actually tackling that while having Michelle Yao like reach across the multiverse to punch people in the face and like, <laughs> and, and, like entering a universe where her, her fingers are made of hot dogs. And it is. I found this movie, uh, it hit me 
so hard that I had to rush out of theater when it was over, where I found a fellow friend who was openly weeping uh, in the lobby. Um, so it's a lot. It's a lot of movie. It's a lot of science fiction. It's a lot of comedy. It's a lot of emotional heft. Um, but I, I found it to be the most moved and energized and excited I've been by a movie in literally five years. I'm sorry. I'm, over, I'm sorry. I'm overhyping. I'm sorry. Everybody's going to watch it and go, Jacob overhyped it. I'm going to say, no, m- maybe you didn't like it as much as I did, but I, yes, I liked it that much. <laughs> Man. I remember when the trailer for this came out and we were all just like losing our minds, like talking about how great the trailer was. I'm so happy to hear that it, uh, it lives up to the promise of that excellent trailer. So also a uh, key um, Kwan, uh, who, who everybody knows is short round from, um, from from uh, Indiana Jones movie and the kid from the Goonies, he's in here and he's incredible. Like he's a, look, he plays uh, Michelle Yao's character's husband, and uh, the range he displays and where that character goes is astonishing. Uh, I, I, Michelle Yao is getting all the headlines because she's amazing, she's great. But uh, Ki uh, Ki Hui Kwan is uh, like if if you're like me and it's always knew him, it's just is that kid from eighties movies. Like holy mm-hmm. cow! Like that's okay. I'm done. Everything <laughs> all at once. It hits later this month, March twenty fifth. You should go see it. Ah, incredible. Okay, I'm super excited about that. All right, uh, yeah, I think that's going to bring us to the end of today's show. You can find more about all of these movies at SlashFilm.com. I will link to a lot of the reviews in the show notes of this episode. SlashFilm Daily is published every weekday, bringing the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps, and you can send us your feedback, questions, comments, concerns and mailbag topics to peter at slashfilm.com make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air don't forget to rate and review the show on apple Podcasts. that does actually help us out a lot tell your friends spread the word thanks for listening and we will talk to you all tomorrow